Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. You may know her as the Kick Sugar Coach, but we call her Florence. Join Clarissa and I on today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast as we sit down with our colleague, Florence Christophers. Florence is the founder of the annual Kick Sugar Summit and head coach of a company that helps men and women reduce or eliminate their consumption of processed carbohydrates linked to rising rates of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, depression, dementia, and other lifestyle-related disease. Her coaching helps clients eat better, move more, reduce or eliminate medications, lose weight, improve mood, and more. Listen in as Florence tells us about her personal and professional journeys, how working with food addiction has evolved into overcoming emotional eating, and especially how she answers our signature question. Florence's approach to addressing emotional eating is similar to how Clarissa and I coach clients through craving management. Florence also talks about the sugar dragon, very much like we talk about red dog or attic brain. We hope you like this interview as much as we did. Welcome, Florence. Well, thank you again for being here, Florence. We're just going to jump right in. Can you tell us your personal story, your aha moment, and how that personal and professional kind of weave together? I mean, recently you mentioned in our networking group, 32 years. So what are kind of the, the Coles notes, as you Canadians might say, to, <laughs> to this story? Okay. Wow. Like most sugar addicts, I can look back into my childhood and see a child that was lit up and in love with all things sweet and sticky and starchy. I recall telling lies to be able to get into the cupboard to eat sugar. My, my family, actually, my mother never restricted any food. I don't come from the background of, you know, anyone ever commenting about what we ate. The fridge and the freezer and the cupboards were full of processed junk foods. And I helped myself at will. But even under those circumstances, I knew that it wasn't right that I wanted to get drag a chair over at the age of five or six or whatever I was to get up on the counter, to get up to the top shelf where the brown sugar was just stored. It wasn't hidden, but I knew even under those circumstances, my mother would say, what on earth are you doing child? (laughs) So it's amazing how a five-year-old knows when something's not right, but I couldn't have told you what it was. Right. I also have uh, my mother told me this story. It was only after the fact that I vaguely remembered it. She would find me in the Lazy Susan. Uh, we had this huge Lazy Susan. We had very deep cupboards in our kitchen countertops for some reason. And I could squeeze in there and I'd eat these raw macaroni. And I would just sit in the cupboard and I'd chew on this raw macaroni. My, my cheeks would look like chipmunks and they would be all gooey and it would take forever to break it all down. And honest to God, that was my happy that was my happy time. Like it was just such a pleasure. So obviously, you know, I came into the world predisposed to treat refined carbohydrates, like the most lovely of opiates. My history on both sides of my father and my mother's side, there's definitely alcoholism. 
My grandfather, proud to say, was the founding member of the first AA chapter in Canada. And so I have a long history of addicts who have slowly clued into, hey, wait a minute, what in the heck is going on with me and X, like alcohol or beer or whatever? In my case, it was sugar and flour. So my aha moment, interestingly, it, it was kind of a weird moment. It was, it was a turning point of my entire life. Absolutely. I had blinding migraines. I had all kinds of health issues as a child, mainly migraines. I didn't have much of a weight issue till my teen years when I would say the binging started to take off, but I had blinding migraines. I had depression. I had moods. I had cranky skin. Later, I had acne. Later, I had stage four rosacea. I had every infection going and I was often just miserable and I didn't know why. And in and out of doctor's offices. And anyways, when I was in my 20s, I lived on campus at a university and I had a very charmed life. I loved being in university. I had tons of friends. I thrived in that environment. I was always a little researcher and I I was kind of an academic by nature. I did well in school. I enjoyed learning. So here I am in the prime of my life. You know, I had friends in like I lived on a house on campus and there was always people over and you know I did everything that my friends did the same I ate craft dinner for breakfast I had pizza for dinner and junk food in between and all day all night long too so we would have a pizza let's say on a Friday night people would start drinking maybe and we would have pop and everyone else would be absolutely fine the next day and I was sick as a dog. I'd have headaches, I'd be depressed, I couldn't get out of bed. And I kept thinking, this just isn't fair. Like, why is this happening to me? And I was in and out of doctor's offices and of course they were throwing pharmaceuticals at me like it was the candy I was binge eating. And you know, I was trying them, but nothing was really bringing results. And one day, oh, thank God, I had a friend bring me a copy of a beat up old cop copy of the book called the sugar blues. And she said to me, maybe this could help you with your migraines to which I gave her the stink eye. What? <laughs> like, what has this got to do with my migraines? I have asked doctors over and over and over, you know, is there something I'm eating? Is there something I'm doing? The number of hours I've spent in the dark wanting to die you know, holding my head saying, okay, I know you're upset, but what do you need? Like, I'll do anything. Just tell me body, what is it? And I never really heard the words, you know, it's the crap you're eating. I don't know why I didn't, but I, I didn't. Well, that's not true. I probably had some inkling, but not a laser sharp clarity. So I looked at this book and I, I kind of rolled my eyes at her and I said, oh, I'm pretty sure sugar has nothing to do with my migraines. <laughs> so, but let me tell you, I tossed the book aside, even being a voracious reader and a curious mind, I threw it aside, literally, I don't remember where I put it, but it was like out of sight, out of mind. But the next migraine I had, I thought, what the hell have I got to lose? So I pulled up the book and I started it early evening and I was like three or four, four in the morning and my head's nodding off and I could not put the damn book down. And I knew 
I knew this was a turning point in my life. And so after I finished, I didn't finish the book, but the next day I finished it and I've never, ever, ever a day in my life, not been obsessed with the topic of sugar. And I basically just transferred my previous obsessive compulsive behavior around refined carbohydrates to the topic of sugar itself. So (laughs) it became my new object of obsession and in the back of the sugar blue. So I got lit up every single sentence spoke right to me. It was like William Dufty himself wrote that book for me. And I was so jacked up and so excited to get off sugar. And I remember trying and I would go two or three days and then I would cave because I felt worse off it. No, there was no talk in his book about detox. This was pre-internet. So this was, let me say, 1990. Is that right? No, it was 1980. 1989, somewhere in there, right? Before Dr. Kathleen de Maison had published her books, before anything, there was as uh, pure white and deadly, right? And then there was the Sugar Blues, and there was one other obscure book that I had tracked down. But in the back of those books were references. So that was that was turning point number one. And in the back of those books were references, little obscure references to weird little articles and research studies that had been done. And I went and looked them all up and, and went down to my library and tried to find them. And if I couldn't, I wrote old school hand snail mail, wrote letters to universities around the world, say, could I get a copy of that study? Because that's the kind of woman that I am. So in the meantime, I am now obnoxious because all I'm talking about is sugar. And every time I'm at a party, I'm telling them, don't eat it. Don't eat that stuff. It's deadly. Anyways, so I was one of those evangelical types that annoyed absolutely everybody around me, including my poor family. I know better now. If you reach (laughs) out for help, I will overdo it. But I certainly, you know, I don't, uh, (laughs) I'm not as, as annoying as I used to be about it, but I, I would have friends and everyone who would listen to me back then say, Florence, that's just crazy. You can't be addicted to sugar. Nobody's addicted to sugar. My friend Remco, quote unquote, said to me, Florence, you need sugar to live. Like you would die if you don't eat sugar, right? (laughs) So anyways, let me just say I was out on a limb in a universe of my own, me and William Dufty and nobody else I knew in the whole world. So that book not only, you know, was no longer in some dusty corner of my office, it was with me in bed. I literally hugged it. I was like, William, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So As any addict story goes, I didn't realize addicted when I read that book. But as you get, when you're so fired up and so committed and so passionate about the idea of unhooking to see if this would help my migraines and my mood and everything else that was falling apart about my poor body, I couldn't string together more than a week or two at a time on my own. Like I just kept thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Like this is should be easy. I'm, I really want to do this. But the cravings and the headaches and I would get shaky and I feel nauseous. And I was so depressed. I was depressed on it. I was worse off it. So I was muddled. It was a nightmare. And then at some point I remember thinking, oh my God. God, I think I'm addicted to it, right? And this is when I started to say that to my friends and they started to reassure me that that was completely ridiculous. But I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts, there was something not right about how hard this was to give it up. It wouldn't be that hard to give up broccoli. Twizzlers, take away my Twizzlers. And holy smoly, there's like all hell breaks loose inside me, my psyche and my body. 
So I model forward for years and years and years, just sustaining myself by reading every possible snippet of research on the topic of sugar that I could find. And year over year, more and more came out. And it just got more and more exciting. And then Dr. Kathleen de Maison's books came out. And But just before her books came out, by about a year, I had this fit of inspiration that I was actually going to go and do my master's on the topic. And here was the thesis topic, that there might be a connection between sugar addiction and eating disorders in women. Because I don't think I really had an eating disorder before I tried to take sugar out. But I, I fell right into that, you know, I felt deprived. I was white knuckling it and then I felt deprived. And then, oh gosh, you know, that could only last so long before it gets so intense that you literally just eat sugar to, to end the pain of the tension inside you. And so I'm now binge eating. And now I'm like, oh, now great. Now I'm sugar addicted and I'm a binge eater. Oh, what a mess I've made. And I am in and out of psychologist's office and therapy appointments. And I went, I did, I tried 12 different kinds of strategies to try and end my addiction to sugar. And all of them were kind of like pat me on the head. I went to a shaman and I said to her, I'm addicted to sugar and I really need help. And she kind of sort of looked at me like, well, this is the first. <laughs> Usually people come for meth or heroin or cocaine or alcohol, but okay. You know, you could probably moderate it and just have a little, I don't want to moderate it. You're not listening to me. Stop telling me to moderate. There's no such thing as moderation. I don't want it even anymore. You know, that at a certain point, you just realize that even if I had a fairy godmother, and I was in an enchanted little garden and she could just tap her little fairy wand and make something happen for me. I wouldn't choose moderation. By then I knew way too much about sugar. I really didn't want it in my body. So I didn't want moderation. I wanted to become a whole food woman. And so anyways, I'm just sustaining myself on books and uh, by that, by absolute I don't know, just miraculous, wonderful luck. Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland accepted me to do my master's on this thesis topic. So me and my suitcase with a few clothes, an entire much bigger suitcase full of research, little snippets of articles that I have pulled in from universities all around the world. We truck off to Ireland. My mother's of Irish ancestry and I had a girlfriend go to university there and I'd gone to visit her for her graduation, fell in love. I thought, this is the coolest, this, I wanna come here too. So they, got, they accepted me and I get in front of my thesis committee and I tell them all about my topic and I talk just like I'm talking now. I can't talk fast enough to fill them with my passion for this topic and how I know I'm onto something. I'm telling you, there is a connection because look at what's happened to me and I cannot be the only person, even though I think I'm the only person on the planet right now. And at that point I was, nobody, I knew nobody personally, no human being alive could relate to me. So they looked at my research and they said, well, let's, uh, let's just leave this with us. We'll get back to you. So we met, you know, a week, a week or so later, and they kind of basically sat down and said to me, Florence, we really love your passion. This is, this is, we love to see this in students, but there's no way on earth are you doing this thesis topic, right? There's no evidence to suggest A, that it's harmful to the body or B, that it's addictive. You need to pick a different topic. Anyways. In terms of my own recovery, it got better. I certainly had longer and longer stretches of abstinence. I got smarter and smarter about what, how to put whole food meals together. 
And I eventually had cut out dairy because I knew that was a trigger for, for migraines. I cut out wheat, both of which were not easy. I quite liked cheese, thank you. And I quite, I ate wheat all day long. Cereal, sandwiches, pizza, craft dinner. I mean, right? All day long. And it was a bugger to get them out, but it was nothing compared to sugar. Sugar was just sticking with me. But my kind of sugar that I ate got better and better. It was more honey and maple syrup. And then it was coconut sugar. And for a while there it was agave because that was the new healthy sugar. And then, right. And then you learn, oh, dough, that is as bad, if not worse than high fructose corn syrup duped again. Right. But so I'm eating from health food stores and I'm mostly eating organic. And so year over year, I managed to muddle my way to the point where 95% of the time I was high, you know, organic whole food, high quality eating woman, but sugar still snuck in there. And so, and I never really truly got free, but let me tell you, here was another turning point. I got pregnant. And as soon as I did, I mean, I was already deeply, deeply committed every day to be eating mostly whole foods, but occasionally, you know, I put maple syrup on my oatmeal or something like that. It would sneak in there, some health food store treat that I was under the delusion was, you know, almost healthy. Anyway, there was still sugar, but I got pregnant and I just remember really clearly thinking, I never, ever would want to pass this on to a child of mine. I will not eat a stitch of any processed refined carbohydrates. I will be a whole food woman through my pregnancy. Like that woman, you know, who's hooked on cigarettes, who gives up cigarettes for the year that she's pregnant and then goes back, right? That was me, except twice. I had a cheese sandwich once and it was because I was in a pinch and I couldn't eat and I thought, oh, it's no big deal. I've been so good. Second time is I had some pumpkin pie. Now it was supposed to be one slice, but three quarters of a pie later, but that's it. In the whole nine months, that's all I am. hundred percent whole food woman. After that, I was so truly, truly deeply committed to this. I didn't want to set my child up for at that time. I had, you know, down the road, I discovered it was my daughter. I didn't want to set her up for, for this addiction. It was awful. Wouldn't wish I'm not an enemy. So that was great. Sky is born and now I'm nursing. And I have the same commitment. I'll be damned if I'm going to drip sucrose in my baby through my breast milk. You know, it's one thing to take down my own body, but it's another to bring this baby into this mess, right? And so I was very, 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 very good for the first year, like impeccable, whole food woman. But in the second year I went back, I was actually a university professor and I'd gone back to work and I was teaching and staying up late, preparing lectures and marking papers. And, and I just, I got back into the sugar. And I remember when I picked Sky up from daycare and I would nurse her and I just felt so bad. And I just thought, I just don't want to be doing this. Why? If I can be do this, you know, like when I was pregnant, like with a really good reason, why can't I sustain this? Why do I have to keep relapsing on this stuff. And by that time I was relapsing on white chocolate chip macadamia cookies because the bakery was on the way to the university and on the way back. And they were sustaining me because I was tired and I was nursing Sky at night and, you know, typical new mom story, right? Where you just like two candles at both ends. So that was my second turning point. I dropped to my knees. And at that point in time, I would describe myself as quite a sort of agnostic slightly atheistic, probably. I had long since given up hope that there was any sort of entity in the wild beyond that gave a shit about me because my decades of praying for relief from migraines clearly didn't do anything. And my decades of praying for relief from sugar addiction wasn't hurt either. 
So I was pretty on the fence about whether or not my prayer would be heard, but I was on my knees and I was kind of facing my closet where there were shoes. So I was kind of at that point in my mind, I was praying to my shoes and, but I deeply prayed and I prayed with every cell in my body, dear universe, what anything out there that can hear me, please help me with this addiction. I'm so done. I'm at my bottom. This is as dark as it, I don't, this I'm done. Please anything throw me a bone. The next day I opened up my local paper and there was a little ad for a 12 step program on food addiction recovery. And my eyes were bulging. And I was like, what? There's such a thing. So on the bottom was the name of a a man named Ron. And I called Ron and Ron picked up the phone and he's like, we were like, he's like, oh yeah, you're one of us. You sound exactly this. This is for you. And he goes, you just get your butt to a meeting. He goes, we have one tomorrow night, seven o'clock. I'll meet you at the door. And he did. And that was it. So in the next three years, I was in my 12-step program and got perfect abstinence. I weighed and measured every ounce of food. And it created miracles beyond anything I could describe because you just can't believe what you see in these rooms of people fully unhooked from processed foods. I saw a man named Eric, who's not his real name, lose uh, 75 pounds in just over six months. Men lose it much quicker, apparently. Bless his little soul. He had 11 medications coming in just over six months. He was off 10 of them. He brought his pans to the front of the room when he got his first 90 days of total perfect back-to-back abstinence. You know, he's like, I could almost fit in the pal leg of one of these, right? It was amazing. But the incredible thing was, is that he had reversed his diabetes completely. And he'd done it really early on. And I kept thinking, that just isn't true. There's no way you can reverse diabetes because that would be on the front page, the front page of the New York Times. He must be lying. And I remember poking the guy beside me. I don't think he's telling the truth. Like, I don't think he can reverse diabetes. This was 18 years ago. And he's like, Florence, people reverse diabetes all the, if you don't reverse diabetes, your sponsor is going to say to you, fess up. What are you eating? Yeah. I call bullshit. You are eating something <laughs> because if your diabetes isn't more or less reversed within 30 days, you're not, you're not following the meal plan here, right? You're not, you're not on program. So I just was walking around stunned all the time. Why is this not on the front page of every newspaper? And the food you eat is so beautiful and so abundant and so satisfying. It is a pleasure that is way, way, way beyond what sugar is. But you got to get through the detox and you got to recalibrate your taste buds and you got to balance your blood sugars. But it doesn't take that long. It really doesn't. And then all of a sudden, your body that all this time has been traumatized. I mean, I talk a lot about food trauma. It is a trauma to any living organism to not have sufficient nutrition to operate its systems, right? And we're going chronically on malnutrition and toxic food and malnourishing food. And so all it's all my life, my little body just wanted to have its protein and healthy fats and beautiful vegetables and berries and whatever the heck else I eat, right? And everybody's a little bit different in terms of which ones work. And that was a bit of a journey too for me was that I, I tried so many years of doing intuitive eating, which was a nightmare, absolute bloody nightmare. I love Janine Roth. I'll hug you if I see you. And then I'll kick you in the ass at the same time. <laughs> oh my God. What were you doing to me, woman? God. Yes. I, 
So this would be, oh, intuitively, what do I want to eat? I want to eat an entire bowl of peanut chocolate M&Ms for lunch. That's exactly what I want. And then for dinner, Black Forest cake with a side of Twizzlers, right? Like that's yes. intuitive eating for a sugar addict. But I did yeah. realize that intuitive eating is truly a thing if you're not a sugar addict, because I became an intuitive eater after I broke up with sugar, was able to end the addiction. And then you need to be an intuitive eater. So I always say to my clients, you know what? Yes to intuitive eating, but you can trust the signals from your body if we're talking about whole foods, but if it's calling or intuitively wanting anything that's processed in any way, shape or form, you can't trust it because it's hijacking our appetite and our our brains. So, So I got clean and sober and had the most astonishing transformations in mind and body through my 12-step program. But Molly, I didn't get free. I was going to three meetings a week. I was doing an AWOL. I was doing daily calls. I was doing extraordinary amounts of work. And every day, you know, not every day, you get into the rhythm of it. But every day, there was always in the back of my mind, the voice of my sponsor saying, don't you let your guard down because you're you're sugar addicts out there in the parking lot doing push-ups, just waiting for you to get, just waiting for that moment. It's prowling around like a shark in the waters. And I felt, I mean, I was abstinent. I ate nothing but whole foods, but I was batshit crazy. I was obsessed with food. I was working so bloody hard every day. I mean, and there was at a certain point, I almost felt like I was in a different prison. And this is not to say anything bad about my 12-step program. In fact, I came full circle with it. But at that time, I felt like my daughter was growing and I could never on a Wednesday night go and do something with her, be it a recital or a school, because Wednesday nights were my meeting night. And if I didn't go, my sponsor would drop me. So... I was caught at that certain point. I was grateful for my abstinence and really grateful for my sponsor. And, but I I just thought, gosh, I just want this to be done, done, done. And unfortunately for me, that didn't happen for another. So that would have been, oh, that didn't happen for another decade. So I kind of muddled my way through. I left program and when I was three years, just under, and then I moved to a province, British Columbia in a small community in the mountains, no meetings. There were no online meetings uh, for this particular 12-step program at the time. So I just kind of, you know, just moved forward with myself. And again, most of the time I was 95% eating whole foods. And every now and then I'd get some, some sort of like, you know, what I thought would be an acceptable sugar. So I then eventually came back to Alberta. And at one point I was sitting on my couch watching that sugar film with Damon Gamo out of the United States. And I was so delighted because finally the world was catching up and talking about sugar and I was no longer the food freak. And I mean, certainly lots of books were flooding on the market. More and more people were talking about it. It was becoming a bit more mainstream. But that movie, I felt like this is on Netflix. This has arrived. Finally, you know, 25 years later or whatever, you know, this has gone mainstream. How exciting. But halfway through this film, he's in this small town where this poor 18 year old kid was given Mountain Dew from the, you know, from the time he was born in his mm-hmm. bottle and all of his teeth had rotted out of his head. Mm-hmm. And Damon says to him, Hey buddy, you know, are you going to stop drinking Mountain Dew? And my face was like, are you stupid? So I, <laughs> I grabbed the remote and I'm watching it with my husband. We always watch shows like this. Anyone can grab the remote and pause and talk, right? We'd be annoying to anyone outside would, would hate watching TV with us. But anyways, I grabbed the remote and I hit pause. 
And I said, John, oh, that's, doesn't he get it? It's like, it's not just about the sugar. Sugar is so addictive. It's not that easy. Of course, he's not going to just, oh, yeah, I'll just give up a Mountain Dew now. Hell no, it's not going to be that easy. He's 18 for one thing. He hasn't really been beat up yet, enough yet. But anyways, so I said to Sean, that's it. I'm going to put on a summit. I'm going to put on a summit about sugar, but about sugar addiction and sugar addiction recovery. Because it's not enough just to be talking about sugar. I'm delighted the world is talking about sugar now. Refined carbohydrates and how it is one of the greatest human injustices ever inflicted on, on, on humankind and or corporate injustices, I should say. It's right up there with cigarettes. And I, I said, I'm going to put on a summit. And he's like, well, how do you do that? And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, clue. I wouldn't even know where to begin. But I, I know they exist because I've seen them before. So I, wow, what a journey that was, right? Because I was so afraid that no one would say yes and no one would be a speaker on my summit. And now I know like, oh no, people are delighted to be a, to be speakers on summits. But at the time, so I researched all these names and I got their email addresses and I was sweating bullets. Like have, have either of you ever worked with MailChimp? And you oh, know no. Okay, no? <laughs> okay, you know, just before you hit the button, there's that monkey that's sweating and it's like so afraid. <laughs> that's how I felt. Like, what are they going to think of me asking if they'll be on my summit? Anyway, so I uh, I'd actually didn't have the money to put on a summit. So I actually went down to my local bank and I said to her, could I have a loan for $5,000? I want to put on a summit. She goes, uh, interesting. And I said, yeah, I really think it's going to be a good idea. And I'll pay it off. Even if it takes me years to pay it off, I really want to do this just for my own. Like, I just need to do this. I feel called to do this. She's like, well, you know what? I believe that you're onto something here. You know, I, I, I don't know why I probably other bankers would say, are you nuts? But I'm going to give it to you. So I got my little $5,000 loan because I had to hire all the tech staff and I hired a coach to help me figure out how to do this. And anyways, I hit send, all those emails go out and slowly one by one by one, people said, yes. One of them was Vera Tarman. One of them mm. was Dr. Joan Ifland and the other one was Bitten. And they were like my, some of the very first people who replied. And still to this day, like I just, I just feel this total connection and appreciation for those pioneers that were out there more further out there, had books and stuff way before I did. So anyways, yeah. So I did the summit and on that summit, I met a man by the name of Jack, who was an alcoholic of many years and had been in and out of 12 step programs and it didn't quite stick. And so he actually had a blinding epiphany one day about what is addiction? And I'm happy to talk about it. It's really, really interesting. What is addiction? And when he had this blinding epiphany, he ended his addiction to alcohol like that. It was just over. He never relapsed again. Not that you can't relapse with his approach, but it's much, much, much harder because it isn't a one day at a time approach. It's quite different. And so and I'm happy to talk about it. It's really exciting to me. But he literally, he was so anti-12 step, though, unfortunately, that I decided not to air his interview. And there's only been two or three people in seven years of doing interviews or summits that I thought, I can't air this. Like, I just don't think it makes them look good or it's not the right vibe or whatever. But yeah, so I said to him, I'm not going to air your interview because I have seen lives turn around through 12 steps and it didn't work for you, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work for some people. And so certainly lots of my own family members. And so he's like, yeah, no, I get it. But we had a conversation. He kind of to coached me in his, in his approach and he just set me free. So there was William Dufty. There was my 12-step program. And then there was Jack. William awakened me. Jack set me free. 
And uh, yeah, those are my three major milestones with my addiction. And so are you open to me telling you a bit about this approach? Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. So here's the cool thing about how he frames what is addiction. He says that an addiction is, and it's obvious as soon as he says it, like, yeah, but he, it's so clear. All addicts are of two minds. There's a part of them that wants freedom because somehow deep inside them in their heart of hearts, they know something's wrong. This isn't right. This is harming me. I don't want to be doing this anymore. When my clients approach me to work with me, I'll ask them questions. And when they approach me with, you know, I feel like I should get off sugar. Yeah. And they're all jacked up. They're quite excited and sparkly and passionate about it. And I think, oh, okay. Yeah. They're at the feeling level. I feel like I should get off sugar. And I think you're not ready for me yet. Not yet. There might be another program that you're ready for, but not for me quite yet. Then they might come to me to say, well, you know, I've been doing some research and I think it would be really good for me to get off sugar. Because, you know, rationally, it's pretty clear, it's harmful to the body. And I think, oh, yes, you're very right. And you're not ready for me yet. Then I get the third person and they say, I know I need to get off sugar. And I'll say, okay, tell me more. Is it that two o'clock in the morning, cold sweat, deep in your soul, you know, the shit's killing you. And if you don't do something, it's not going to be pretty. And you're awake. And there's never going to be a moment for the rest of your life that if you put sugar in your mouth... You won't end your day in shame, guilt, or regret. You will never be at peace again. That's the level of knowing, right? That's when you're ready. That's when something splits and you become of two minds. There's a part of you that knows. And it doesn't matter if a hundred down doctors come down and say, you know what? Moderation's better. It'll extend your life. You could say, great, I'll die early. I don't care. I know it's my truth. It comes from a higher place. That knowing wants its freedom. It wants to unhook. It's no longer charmed by sugar. It looks like a smoking little stinky cigarette in an ashtray. It no longer, it looks like skull and crossbones. It looks like weight gain, pain, suffering, and misery. It looks at those processed refined foods and sees suffering. It doesn't see cake and pleasure and party anymore. But there is a part of you that still looks at the sugar. I call that the sugar dragon. And the sugar dragon says, oh, look at those donuts, right? So these two parts of you are in conflict, are in a power struggle. And when you're doing one day at a time, well, not so much that, but when you're doing willpower and you're trying to white knuckle your way through, I'm not going to eat it today. I'm just going to eat whole foods today. You're, this is where your little dragon or your little gremlins in the parking lot, just waiting for that moment when your willpower runs thin and it just pounces and it suggests and it justifies the consumption of sugar. And it will bold-faced lie or it will sweet talk you, sweetheart, you've had such a hard day. You know what? You've been so good. It's just, it's okay. It's just it's just a pizza pizza. It's, you know, there's not even that much. It's just a little bit of flour. It's whole, it's whole wheat flour. Oh my God, shut up. <laughs> right? So what happens is Jack teaches you a technique to be able to observe. So it's a three-step process. You're able to identify the voice of the dragon. Oh yeah, I hear you. And you, it's a very clear voice in your head. If you're truly addicted, if you're not, you don't hear it. You know what the hell we're talking about. You hear the voice, you observe it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There it's going. And then you can, you learn to ignore it. And it's a three-step process and it's really not that hard to learn. It's a skill. If, however, there is no two parts of you that you are just enjoying drinking a bottle of wine every day or eating Black Forest cake for breakfast, you're not an addict yet. 
Now, someone on the outside might look at the way you're drinking or eating or engaging with substances that are known to be opiate-like and say, oh, you know, you're an alcoholic or you're addicted to sugar. But the tr- Jack will say, it's not true. Until there's a part of you that splits away, this rational part of you that splits away and is able to observe what's going on with your dynamic with refined carbohydrates, you are actually up into that point, just exercising your constitutional right to enjoy sugar. And the moment of addiction happens when you split into two minds. And so what Jack taught me was how to observe the urge and ignore it and Basically, what he taught me how to do is come into alignment with my own truth. I get to do what I want to do. There's never any willpower required to do what you want to do. You just do it. It's easy. I want to do this. You go do it, right? All it's easy. It flows. It's effortless. So the trick for me was to be able to recognize that I never, ever, ever, ever want sugar and haven't wanted sugar since I read The Sugar Blues 32 years ago. But it does. It wants it and it will always want it because it lights up like a Christmas tree because it is high as a kite. It loves to party with food and it's never not going to be a junkie and it's never going to be rational because it comes from the limbic brain and it's a rogue pleasure drive. And all of us have rogue pleasure drives that we've learned to moderate and manage. So, for example, when we're young and someone pushes our buttons, we don't you know, we might have the thought I'm going to tell them to go fly a kite with a cuss word, or we're gonna, I'm going to punch him out. But we learn not to do that. We have all kinds of crazy ideas that go through our heads that we don't act on. And this is just another one of those crazy ideas that I'm like, are you kidding me? Right? Like, it's just so easy. So since I met Jack, I've been set free. But I will tell you that in the course of my coaching with him, my call with him, I was so gobsmacked by it that I just felt like I was looking at the world through entirely new eyes. I felt incredibly powerful. I have all the power. I get to do what I want to do. It was a whole new world. And I woke up and it was so amazing. I didn't want to jinx it. I didn't even tell my husband about it. And I didn't tell either my husband or my daughter for at least three months that I had been perfectly, peacefully, joyfully, almost ecstatically, 100% sugar-free, effortlessly. But I kept thinking, I'm not going to tell anybody because this cannot last. This shoe is going to drop. And I don't want to be, you know, have declared, oh, I'm sugar-free. Like, I, anyways, but I just kept week over week, month over month. It just kept sticking. And in the meantime, I was sending these little emails to Jack saying, I love and adore you. And I'm forever indebted. Like, I was embarrassing myself. Almost borderline inappropriate, but um, like I just was so grateful, so grateful. It was just amazing. And so at about the six month mark, I circled back around to him and I said, I've been 100% sugar free effortless for six months. It's, it's like, I feel like it's kind of done. And he goes, you'll know and no one can tell you. You'll just know there's this moment when it just feels like a non-issue. Like there's a moment in a smoker's life where they look at cigarettes and I'll go, I cannot believe I was ever addicted to those. That is crazy. How could I ever have thought those cigarettes were appealing? And anyway, so I said to him at the time, is there anyone that's brought this technique to the sugar addiction world yet? He says, nope, you'd be the first. I said, I'm on it. Watch me. (laughs) So that's what I did. I started to put some, some ads on Facebook and I asked for free practice clients. Anybody addicted to sugar? I I need some, I want to practice to see if I can teach this. And I got better and better and better at it. And then as I 
as I kept doing my summits, I was also doing group coaching programs and I got better and better and better. And it just keeps evolving in terms of my understanding of how to work with the technique and how it has to be coupled. I was under the extraordinary delusion that it was the only thing one needed to break up with sugar. And I now realize that I, I had the meal plan in place. That, that I could have, the t- it was the last thing I needed to come into place. I had the meal plan. Mm-hmm. I just needed the mindset shift, right? And so I was having clients come in. I was giving them this, my ninja mind trick, as I call it. And then they were going off and they were staying clean and sober six months or a year, easily effortlessly, and then relapsing. And I was, I was following up with them to making sure that, you know, that this was sticking for them as well. of my clients had relapsed. So 86% year and a half out, were still sugar flour free. 14% were relapsing. And I'm like, wow, what happened? Why didn't this stick? Almost always it was because they were eating inadequately. One woman out of the UK, God bless her soul, wasn't eating protein all day. Her breakfast was potatoes, peas, and steamed carrots. I'm like, honey, where's your protein? (laughs) Like, you know what? This is a great technique. And, but you need to be adequately nourished because if you don't have enough of the amino acids to build your hormones and build your neurotransmitters, you're not going to feel good. And your poor little body will eventually say, can we just go back to the chocolate, please? Because that's the only thing that makes me feel good. But you can rebuild your body and rebuild your neurotransmitters. And it takes time. And But it's like giving hiring somebody to do a job, like let's say you've hired somebody to come and clean up your yard and mow it and break it. and But no, no more and a broken down rake. Like that's the equivalent of your meal plan right now. How the hell your body's supposed to get, make you feel good and stable and calm and happy and right. So that's my story. So thank you so much. That was a lot. You know, it just really, I think will encourage our listeners to know, just don't give up because you're just not there yet. Right. And it's still that freedom is out there for us. And what you were speaking to about Jack's trick, I think both Molly and I, when we work with clients, we refer to it like addict brain and recovery mind. And that, you know, these thoughts, they don't control us. We actually can control them as well. And you have moved now more into the emotional eating arena. And you sent us that beautiful summit on the two hour of switching from, well, diagnosing the difference between food addiction and emotional eating. And I think it's so important. What you said is you've got to get that abstinence with an abstinent food plan before you start to work on the emotional eating. And I really think, and I often find with clients that it is that emotional aspect to the disease that brings us back and causes a slip or relapse. So can you tell us a bit about your shift to emotional eating and how you work with clients around that? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. And I'd love to say that I tell my clients that for most of our lives, we are sacrificing the health of our body for our mood to feel better, to feel happy, to actually to feel high. And high is the enemy of happy. And one of the things that we discover when we break up off our drug of choice is A, we have almost no skills to deal with life on life's terms. We've always had a really reliable drug that was legal and free and easy and didn't make us drunk. We could still drive a car and still function at work. So we have developed none of the skills we need around self-soothing and stress management. And so now there's this huge deficit there. And when we pull away this very reliable drug, that's great at taking the edge off stress and lifting our moods and making us feel better. We all of a sudden are bombarded with 
all these feelings and stresses that are pretty uncomfortable. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I was six months sober, that when after I met Jack, and I, despite the fact that probably for the first, I'm going to guess 90 days or so, I was so overjoyed that this was working, so overjoyed, decades and decades of wanting this exact freedom. And that joy carried me quite far, but it didn't, you know, over time it kind of wears off. And then you're kind of left with the fact that I feel like shit, like, sorry to say, but I really don't, I'm not happy. I don't feel good. I feel really stressed all the time. And I had good days and bad days, but it was like this rawness and flatness sometimes even. Well, of course, my brain chemistry was balancing itself out and repairing itself. But I remember asking one of my speakers after one of the summits, I said, you are so lit up and so full of life and joy. I said, you know, I'm six months, 100% whole foods, no sugar, no flour, not just, and I said, I'm not feeling that. And he goes, oh, he goes, well, it does take a bit of time. And he said, it's been six months. He goes, oh, okay. That means that you need to look at other levers. Are you still eating grains? Yep. Cut them out. Okay. <laughs> Are you exercising enough? Hit and miss. Well, kiddo, look, it isn't the be all and end all, you know, like it doesn't make carpet stains go away. So I was like, right. So I then started to tweak a little bit more with my diet, which helped. And then of course you need to bring in the self-care that I've not had to do really consistently. It wasn't role modeled in my childhood because my parents had addictions and B all this time, why do self-care when black force cake is way better at making me feel happy and good and get me back in gear, right? Like why not go for a walk in nature or sit and meditate for a half hour? Like, oh, it's almost like a chore. Actually, I quite like being in nature. But anyways, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was tweaking my diet and I realized that breaking up a sugar is always necessary, of course, always necessary. For most people on the planet, we need to unhook from sugar. Now, for some of us, pure abstinence, others, you know, 99% of the time, because no one has spared the negative consequences of eating refined carbohydrates. And you don't have to be an addict to get off sugar. In fact, I often say to my emotional eaters, Hey, look, you're not hooked into sugar. You can take it or leave it. So for God's sake, leave it. What reason on earth do you have that could justify eating refined carbohydrates? There's no nutritional value in it. So leave it, right? Let me just tell you that no matter how many pharmaceuticals that flood into the market, no matter how many what breakthroughs in medicine or surgery or supplements, or no matter how many superfoods you eat, or how many shamans or therapists or anything you try, you will never undo the damage that sugar does. There's nothing on the planet yet that can undo the damage that sugar is doing to your body. And it is only a matter of time before you come down with one of the great lifestyle diseases, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, cataracts, cancer, acne, anxiety, depression, on and on and on and on and on. Guaranteed, nobody is spared. You are not exceptional. Now, our elders, generations up, were born and raised on whole foods. They have slightly better genetics and they can last longer before they fall apart, but they will fall apart. It's just a matter of time. So you're an emotional eater. If you can take it or leave it, leave it. There's no good reason. That doesn't mean sometimes you won't have a piece of birthday cake or whatever, but it's part of a planned meal. Anyways, so I discovered that here I am. I needed to still pull some levers with my, with my meal plan, which helped. And then I needed to start to do more self-care, which helped. But I was still overeating almonds. I could still overeat chicken. I could overeat salad. I could still eat when I wasn't hungry. I was still using food for comfort as one of my main stress places to go when I was feeling stressed. 
And it was painful. Now, not as painful as I was in sugar, but kind of, it was just like the next level pain, like the, the saying new level, new devil. Just when I thought all I had to do my entire life, I just if I could get off sugar, everything in my life would be perfect. Like literally carpet stains would disappear. My bank balance would, I don't know, double or something. Like just, I thought magical about it. Yes, it did everything I wanted to do and then some, but it didn't mean that I didn't need to keep growing. That when I got to the next level, I realized, oh gosh, Forrest, you're still emotionally eating. You're not done. Your work with food. And I thought, son of a gun. I want to want to keep thinking about food this much. I want to live between meals. Like I don't, but I wasn't done. So I went back and I did some courses with some people that did emotional eating. And I started to realize that I was having clients come back to me to say, I'm overeating almonds and half, I ate a half a jar of peanut butter yesterday. It wasn't sugar, Florence. I'm like, right. Yeah. I need to figure this out inside me so that I can bring this to the table. So what to say about emotional eating? Here's what I would say is that almost all emotional eaters, there might be exceptions aside, and I'll tell you about who the exceptions might be, but almost all emotional eaters got inadequate and inconsistent nurturing as children. And the role of our parents is to do two things. One, obviously to nurture us and to take really, really great care of our bodies and our our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our emotions, right? And an ideal parents in an ideal world would be there consistently and sufficiently. But we don't live in an ideal world and there's no ideal parents, right? So it's really, really hard to get that right. Even as a parent myself, I didn't. I know that I passed down deficits that way. So most emotional eaters are supposed to learn these self-care skills in their childhood, They're also supposed to learn the skill, or ideally they learn the skill of a form of of cognitive behavioral therapy, where when something really painful happens in life, and it happens throughout our lives, a parent is available enough that child can come and say, such and such said this to me at school today, or I'm really upset about, you know, you and daddy separating. And the parent will be able to hear what the thoughts are, that that the stories the child is telling about that painful event. It means I'm unlovable. It means I don't belong at school. It means I'm ugly, whatever. And a parent can come in and say, oh, no, sweetheart. And they reframe the thinking so that it's rational. So those are the two things. You learn how to take care of your body and you learn to take care of your thoughts and your emotions. And spiritually as well, right? Parents can teach you that we're not alone in the universe, that it is profoundly loving and unbelievably responsive. And if you didn't get that out of your childhood, you need to learn it as an adult. So the beautiful thing about emotional eating is that once you've ended your addictions and any addictions, when you've stopped leaning on substances, because, and here's the tipping point for all addicts, here's this pain that we're medicating with our substance of choice. And a moment, a day comes when the pain of your drug of choice is greater than the pain you're medicating, that's when your mind splits into two. Because all of a sudden you're like, whoa, wait a minute, the pain sugar's causing me is greater than the pain it's medicating. Or what happens is the pain, which does escalate over time, of course, that you're just heading towards bottom to cancer, diabetes, depression, whatever, right? You're just every day that we walk the path of refined carbohydrates, we are heading in the wrong direction every single day, week over week, month over month, year over year. So eventually you're going to hit some kind of a bottom. And what also can happen is that we're working so damn hard to try and end our addiction that we're doing all this good therapy work. And sometimes that actually lessens the pain in our lives. So that gap, you know, the pain that sugar is causing you and the pain that you're 
trying to medicate, that gap creates this space of motivation to, to start to tackle the issue of sugar. With emotional eating, you end the sugar, all of a sudden your, your emotions start to come to the surface and you realize, I don't know what to do with these. I'm just miserable now. And there's three choices when you get that miserable. And if it's really miserable, you have three choices. You suffer and you're miserable. You relapse or you commit suicide. So when you look at those options, relapse is so reasonable. So reasonable. Of course, I went back so many times because I didn't know how to not suffer. I didn't have those skills. My parents, if they had them to give me, they would have in a heartbeat. They didn't get them either, right? So I had to go back and figure out what does self-nurturing look like? So there's two main pieces. Well, it's kind of not true. There's four, but there's four parts of us, our body, our mind, our emotions, and our spirit. And when you do assessments, like where are the needs of those four parts of me being not met? And when there's emptinesses and deficits and pain, because those, those four parts of us want to have their needs met. And when they're not, it's painful. So there's two categories. So there's the self-care and then there's the, the mental stuff. So I do CBT and like variations of DBT. And then I also look at self-care. Are you adequately nurturing your body? Are you getting out? You know, so that really I've, I've pulled from my 12-step days. I've probably added one extra but yeah, are you exercising enough? Are you sleeping adequately? Are you planning your day the next day? Are you making sure that you're scheduling your time in nature? Are you having some quiet time to drop into your body, to tune into the cues coming from those four parts of you that help us do course corrections? Every single cue is a gift. Whereas before I thought every single cue was like this overwhelming pressure of like, I don't know how to get those needs met, right? So I just was medicating. I was eating almonds over top of it, right? So I was still stuffing down my feelings. But the beautiful thing is, is that, and this is the thing that I misunderstood about emotional eating recovery is I was so worried I'd have to go back and do all this recovery work because I've, how many freaking years did I spend in therapy trying to <laughs> myself, like, right? Like, I'm, yeah. oh my God, I'm never going to be fixed. Like, I just almost gave up hope and then I, or trying to end my addiction with therapy and this and that I did 12, I did hypnotherapy three different times, different therapists. I worked with a shaman. I did rebirthing. Oh my God. But I realized <laughs> I don't need to go back and fix anything. I just need to learn how to be in the moment. And in that moment, my body knows, my spirit knows, my emotions, my emotional self knows, and my mental, my mind knows what needs to be dealt with right then and there. And it'll come up. And if I've got, I'm taking enough time and I'm slowing things down and I stop chasing these other behaviors that are kind of distracting as well, I can go, okay, I hear you. I hear you, sweetheart. Okay, so tell me more. And then you validate the feelings or you receive the gift. Thank you for that let me see what I can do about that. And then you just get on with the business of meeting your own needs, right? Mm -hmm. And my big stickler point, which was a huge aha for me and my emotional eating recovery work was this. I always felt resistant and depressed and despairing about the idea of having to meet my own needs. I know that sounds crazy, but the reason is I was still waiting for my mom to show up. I was still mm -hmm. hoping that someone was going to show up and do it for me. Can somebody love me? Because I can't. 
Can somebody mm-hmm. get me out of bed and feed me a decent breakfast? Can someone dress me? Honest to God, I know that sounds extreme, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Can somebody just pick me up and soothe me and hold me and rock me through this moment? And at a certain point, you realize your mom's not coming, honey. It's your job. And it's a beautiful job. And you should have learned this in your childhood. And you didn't. So that's okay. Mm-hmm. You got to learn it now. But it doesn't mean, you know, that you're just perpetuating the abandonment that in my parents' heart of hearts, they would never have wished for anybody, not for us kids, right? They were, they were loving doing their best. They were in a difficult marriage and they were, had their own stuff. And my father was a Dutch immigrant, had come through World War II. Oh my gosh, the trauma in that man, right? And my mom was the daughter of an alcoholic and didn't get her needs met. Can't give what you didn't get, right? Even with the best of intentions. And they, they, they did their level best. So there's no hard feelings at all. Nothing but compassion because I can imagine how they felt too. So I needed to learn how to step up and reparent myself. And at first it felt so lonely because I thought it meant that it was only ever going to be about me, but it just isn't true. When I'm able to receive from myself, I'm actually able to do a better job of asking for what I need from other people too. So I'll tell you two, two more stories. One of them is as I've been doing my emotional eating recovery work with myself and my clients, I realized that nursing is a beautiful whole food. It's creamy and it's sweet and right. No kidding. We love the ice cream. And like, I I think there's associations with mother's milk with the foods that bring us comfort. Duh, obvious. But I think there's also something in the experience of being nursed that feels like you're in the land of plenty and abundance and you're cared for and you're safe and secure. Some of us didn't get some of that nursing or some of us had it cut off early or we were bottle fed or whatever, right? And so some of that is interrupted. So I have watched myself struggle with money in my life really significantly in a way where, so when I did my first summit, I didn't never even occur to me to charge. I just put it out there for free. I was willing to go $5,000 in debt to share this information with the world. There wasn't Mm -hmm. a stitch of me that was the least bit interested in in making this a business thing, right? That came later when I realized I could do this as a coach after 30, you know, after all these many years, I could actually use this crazy obsession of mine to do this all day long. Wouldn't that just be a dream come true? Anyways. But I still noticed that I undercharged. I did a lot of stuff for free. And I started to kind of look at my money thing. And I realized that I'm an under earner. And the under earner is a wound, really. You don't feel worthy of money. You don't feel worthy of the security of money. And it was very much tied, I think, into some of my food stuff as well. And so that drove me into some of the deeper stuff. Do you feel worthy of money? Well, rationally, yeah. But there must be something in me, if I'm resisting it, that doesn't. And so no matter how many times I did exercises and how many years I listened to podcasts and love attracting traction to the hell out of it, like it wasn't budging. And then one day I'm out for a walk with my husband and we're talking about it again after 15 years of still talking about this pattern that I'm making mild progress just like I did with my food, but I didn't get to the heart of it. We're walking through the woods in a Canadian winter I think it was in December recently. And all of a sudden, he's like, this isn't intellectual, Florence. You have to feel this. You're going to have to go in and just feel the unworthiness around this. And I'm like, right. Or the deserving, right? So obvious. I'm a coach. Should know it. He's so good at it. Let me tell you. I got lucky. That guy, I should hire him out. 
anyways. <laughs> and um, so I'm like, you're right, Sean. And I said, I don't even know where to begin to do with that. I said, he goes, I don't know. Just, just be with that. So we're walking along and we're kind of just talking. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, guys, I've never seen anything like this in my life or, or with anyone else. I'm walking along and this memory of me having gone on a road trip with my dad because it was so exciting and I was so excited about it because my mom, he was on, on the road a lot. He was a businessman. And my mom said to, to him, Peter, you got to spend more time with your kids. Why don't you take them on the road with you and give them some adventures and spend some one-on-one time with them? And my dad thought, yeah, that's a good idea. So it was my turn for the road trip and we pack up the motor home and I'm so excited. And we go and we drive all the way to Vernon, which is another province away. And during the day, he leaves me in a motor home. So he gets up, he leaves, he goes into the factory. He works all day in the factory and around noon or something, I guess, I start getting really, I'm waiting for my dad to show, I'm doing nothing. I am under the age of 10, I'm eight or nine. It's illegal actually. And I'm in the motorhome all by myself watching cartoons or something. And then I get hungry and I go in and my dad's like, what do you need? What's, what are you doing? Why aren't you in the motorhome? I'm like, oh, I'm hungry. He goes, oh, right, right. So he goes to the vending machine, grabs me a chocolate bar, a pop and a bag of chips and send me back to the motorhome all day. And then when he comes back, we eat dinner and then at night, he number crunches on a little like old fashioned calculator. And I just had this memory of this and how utterly abandoned and unloved and unseen. Like it was so, and all of a sudden, I don't say anything to Sean because it's just this memory flashes before me and I start bawling and I'm bawling so hard, so fast that I, I alarm Sean. He's like, and he doesn't know what to do. So he kind of grabs me and he pulls me into his body. And I think he's trying to like get me to be quiet because some people might come along the trail and embarrass the hell out of both of us. And so I, I instinctively know to pull away and I walk out into the woods and I, I just go walk, walk, walk until I find a tree. And I sit at the base of the tree and I have never had those kinds of sounds come out of me before. I wasn't crying. I was wailing. Like it was just overwhelming and at certain points I actually popped out of my body and I could watch myself and then I would pop back into it it was extraordinary grief and it lasted for about 15 minutes I had no sense of time but it just was waves and waves and waves of the deepest deepest grief and and I eventually kind of seemed to settle down and I caught my breath and I tried to find my glasses and found my glasses and I went back to see Sean and he's just looking at me like what the hell was that? I credit that with the emotional eating recovery work I'm doing. They're all tied, all these different places where we're not able to receive good. And so the kind of the root, the root causes around deserving and how we show up for ourselves and give to ourselves and are able to receive, like all of that's tied. So the beautiful thing, all to wrap this up is to say this, that our sugar addiction recovery journey and our emotional eating recovery journey all point us back to the exact same root of healing that we need to do and what gifts they are, what gifts they are, because all this time, what we really wanted was love and we were settling for black forest cake. But when you start walking this path, you have no idea how spontaneously out of the blue, one day a piece, I couldn't have dug for that. I wasn't digging mm -hmm. for that. It just was ready. It felt the readiness in me, the space in me, the willingness in me, the presence in me. And it said, all right, let's do this. I've been hanging on to this little nugget of grief for quite a while. Let's get this, let's get this purged and healed and cleared. And yeah, so I'll, 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 I'll end it there.
No, this is great. My heart is like singing, Florence. I feel like, I mean, your personal story and mine are a little different. Just so much of your story just lands for me so much. And and what you were saying about the emotional eating part, because I would say if there's anything that I still work on consistently, it's that emotional piece of it. And so much of what you said is it, it just, I mean, I was getting emotional, like it just landed for me so much. And so I think what you're doing with the overcoming emotional eating summit that you just had, I'm expecting or assuming there, there will be more. And I'm going to ask you about that, but I think that it's going to be so powerful for our clients because I certainly know, so I'm a licensed mental health and addiction therapist in Montana. And so a lot of my work with my clients, while it's not therapy is certainly addressing, like, how do we start building that life that we want to be present in? Mm -hmm. Right. Because if we can start adding in those things, like you were saying, the walks in nature, moving our bodies, finding a spiritual practice, learning to play and be creative. You know, I tell clients, go buy bubbles, go buy sidewalk chalk. I don't care if you have kids or not, go get those things and play, right? Like build this life you want to be present in. The more we can do that, I think like, right, we crowd out that demon or addict brain or, you know, sugar dragon, whatever we crowd it out because we're basically just saying you don't belong here. There's, there's no room for you here. It's too positive and lovely. Right? <laughs> so thank you for that. So I'm going to ask you, what other projects are you working on or what should we expect from you in the future? And how can our listeners find you? Okay. Oh my gosh. It's a painful question. The second one, because I keep thinking, I honestly have been so busy doing summits and, and building my coaching packages and that I, I literally don't have a website. I have an old, old website that I built myself like five years ago. It's called kicksugarcoach.com. But I am working another one called FlorenceChristophers.com where it'll have all my programs and the emotional eating stuff and resources and interviews I've done and all that kind of stuff. But I have no, I can't tell you when it'll be active. I've, maybe in July and August, I'll be able to get to it. But my next project is I'm going to do another seventh annual Kick Sugar Summit. That's going to happen in the fall. And I'm really good. I'm going to do some very creative things this year. And one I'll keep as a surprise Again, I'm going to just keep bringing, bringing the focus to the science because we need the science to arm our rational brain so that it stays confident in the decision to break up with sugar because it is a very difficult addiction. It's so easy to go, oh, come on. It's just a piece of cake. Like, like really, it's not that big a deal. No, uh, hell yes, it is. <laughs> and so that science just can kind of come to the rescue when you need it to remind yourself, oh, no, there's no safe consumption of cigarettes, no safe consumption of meth. There's no safe consumption of sugar and destroy brain of mine, dragon of mine, I should say. I have, so we have our signature question as well, but first I have another question. What did you end up doing your master's thesis on in Ireland? Clarissa, what a crazy question. You will not believe it. I wound up doing my master's on a feminist re-examination of Plato's cave. Wow. I know. Right. <laughs> like so weird. So I was a philosophy student. I did my undergrad in philosophy. I did my master's in philosophy, but they accepted me, but I got accepted into a master slash women's studies program in Ireland because they had under philosophy, you could kind of do different disciplines. It's way more interdisciplinary in Europe. So I could kind of bring in this women's studies, women and eating and food and sugar addiction theme, and they considered it still a fit. So anyways, they didn't accepted me until I got there and showed them my scant research and horrified them. But it was all about what's interesting now in hindsight was about Plato's Cave's parable is that everything we see here is a shadow. Mm. It, you know, everything starts in the mind. It's all law of attraction. Everything is an idea first. 
and it manifests second. So Molly's work with what is the life you want to live? You have to be able to see it before you can't build a house without a blueprint. Mm-hmm. You can, but it's, it might have some, it won't be very airtight. <laughs> it may not be a house you want to live in, right? So yeah. it was all about, you know, we have to have a vision first and then we need to feel it and see it and feel like we deserve it, which is a huge piece for those of us that are coming from backgrounds of childhoods where we didn't really get that strong feeling of, you know, we deserve love. We deserve the best. We're unconditionally loved and we belong here on the planet just by virtue of being born and all those things that some of us didn't get. And so let's work on that work and then let's create this inspired vision. And then it manifests so much quicker and easier here in our life. And we are unlimited, powerful beings. And so that was what I did. Yeah. Well, you had the vision and it's manifested so much later in giving that information to others, helping them connect to that language as well with your emotional eating work and all of these summits that you do. So our signature question is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar, carb, processed food addiction, emotional eating, what would it be? Oh my gosh. I'd say, sweetheart, your instinct is bang on the money. Unbelievable. You got this. You never, ever doubt yourself. Trust yourself. That intuition, those instincts, that'll bring you home. Whenever that little dragon comes in and starts speaking off about, you know, oh, everyone else is eating or it's no big deal. That's not the voice you trust. You trust you. You can always trust you. And you're right. And it doesn't matter if the whole world and all your friends and even Trinity College themselves thinks you're crazy. You're right. Now look at the whole world knows. We are right. We are right. We need to get back to whole foods and uh, don't ever quit. And don't think that just because you give up sugar, that's the end of the journey. It's not. That's the beginning, honey, because we need to do the. That's going to free you up, free up your mind, free up your energy to do the deep, beautiful healing inner work. And uh, don't start with the deep healing inner work. I mean, you can always do that parallel, but you don't need to fix yourself to get sugar free. You just give up sugar and then you're freed up to do the healing work, right? And we don't even need to look at it as we're broken. We're not, we're human. No human being on the planet doesn't have evolving to do. Nothing on the planet doesn't evolve. All species are evolving. The planet itself is evolving. Everything evolves. So evolve with joy. And take some shortcuts, get a little bit smart about this law of attraction stuff, like have a vision kiddo and <laughs> know you deserve it and, and, and ask for help. Oh, I love that. So beautiful. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and just this wonderful interview. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on food junkies recovery from food addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.